we have looked at a couple of the I am statements that Jesus gave us that are recorded in John's gospel. Two weeks ago, we considered the fact that the Lord said, I am the light of the world. He who follows after me will never walk in darkness. And last week, we considered him saying, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never be hungry again. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Now, in all of these instances, and in all of these I am statements, there are seven recorded in the book of John. Uh, it is very important to note the first three words, I am the, in all of these statements. Because we know that in the Greek, there is a special emphasis on I am. It's not just a casual statement. It's a declaring of who he is and what he is. I am. And Jesus goes further. He doesn't just say I am. He says, I am the. I am the. He does not say I am a. I am a light of the world. I am the light of the world. That means he is the only one. He is the one above all others. There is no other. He is the light of the world. He is the bread of life. This morning, I want us to look at yet a third one of the I am statements, and it comes from a very famous story that we all know so very well from John chapter 11, if you want to go there in your Bibles, John chapter 11, and it's the raising of Lazarus from the dead. You've heard the story many, many times. It's within this story that Jesus makes yet what some consider to be a very preposterous claim. He says, I am the resurrection and the life. Let's say it together. I. And though it's quite a few verses to read, if you'll stay with me, we really need to read the whole of the story to get it its entirety. So turn with me to John chapter 11 or direct your eyes to the screen and, and let's read. John chapter 11. A man named Lazarus was sick. He lived in Bethany with his sisters, Mary and Martha. This is the Mary who later poured the expensive perfume on the Lord's feet and wiped them with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was sick. So the two sisters sent a message to Jesus telling him, Lord, your dear friend is very sick. Now notice something with me here as we look at that. Notice that they did not presume he would be available to their beck and call. They didn't make that presumption. And also, there's a lot to be gleaned from the fact that they refer to him as your dear friend is very sick. They simply sent the message, and the message was simple. Your dear friend is sick, and they left it to Jesus to determine what to do. Reading on, verse 4. But when Jesus heard about it, he said, Lazarus' sickness will not end in death. No, it happened for the glory of God so that the Son of God will receive glory from this. Church, I declare to you this morning that the ultimate end of all of our circumstances is that Jesus will receive the glory. Take just a minute and let that settle in. Because I know your situation is special, just like my situation is special. I know the pain I have in my problems, and you know the pain that you have in yours. And it's easy to get distracted from the idea that the ultimate purpose in this is that he will receive the glory and he will receive all the credit. But that is true for all of us as believers. The ultimate end for all of us, for the circumstance that you have walked into this house with this morning, the ultimate end in that is that Jesus will receive the glory. Say amen to that, please. 
Verse 5, so although Jesus loved Martha, Mary, and Lazarus, he stayed where he was for the next two days. Hmm. Finally, he said to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. But his disciples objected. Rabbi, they said, only a few days ago, the people in Judea were trying to stone you, and you're going to go there again? Jesus replied, there are 12 hours of daylight every day. During the day, people can walk safely. They can see because they have the light of this world. But at night, there is danger of stumbling because they have no light. And then he said, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep. So often, death in Scripture is referred to as fallen asleep. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but now I will go and wake him up. The disciples said, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will soon get better. They thought Jesus meant Lazarus was simply sleeping, but Jesus meant Lazarus has died. So he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sakes, I'm glad I wasn't there. For now you will really believe. Come, let's go see him. Thomas, named the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let's go too and die with Jesus. When Jesus arrived at Bethany, he was told that Lazarus had already been in his grave for four days. Bethany was only a few miles down the road from Jerusalem, and many of the people had come to console Martha and Mary in their loss. When Martha got word that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him, but Mary stayed in the house. Now, in the next few statements, I want you to notice the incredible faith of this lady, Martha. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. That's faith. But even now, I know that God will give you whatever you ask. That's incredible faith. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Yes, Martha said, he will rise when everyone else rises at the last day. But Jesus told her, and here it is, I am the resurrection and the life. Anyone who believes in me will live even after dying. Everyone who lives in me and believes in me will never, ever die. Do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord. She told him, I have always believed that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, the one who has come into the world from God. Amazing faith. Then she returned to Mary. She called Mary aside from the mourners and told her, the teacher is here and he wants to see you. So Mary immediately went to him. Jesus had stayed outside the village at the place where Martha met him. When the people who were at the house consoling Mary saw her leave so hastily, they assumed she was going to Lazarus' grave to weep. So they followed her there. When Mary arrived and saw Jesus, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if only you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, in the next few verses, we're going to notice some incredibly strong emotions expressed by Jesus, which reminds us that Jesus was not only Son of God, he was Son of Man. He was human. He was real. He was a real human. He felt what we felt. So let's look at these two emotions. The first emotion we see here is what it's going to tell us in the Greek. It literally says, he snorted like a horse. If you really look at what it says, he was deeply moved. And when we get to this word deeply here, as we're going to read in just a moment, don't just pass over it quickly. Understand there's meaning and weight behind the word. He was deeply moved in his anger, in, in his indignation, in his fury. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, 
and saw the other people wailing with her, a deep anger welled up within him, and he was deeply troubled. He didn't weep at first. He was disgusted at what he saw. Why? Well, I think he was angry with the devil for ever introducing death into the world. You've heard it said from this pulpit, not by me, but by someone else who's spoken here for years. We are not designed for death. We are designed for life. Death is anathema to us. It can even feel unnatural to us. Just ask any of the people, and there are many in this room right now who are grieving the loss of a spouse or a child or a close loved one, a father, a mother, an uncle, an aunt. Ask anyone. Death is not, we are not designed for it. That's why it is so miserably uncomfortable for us. And I believe in this moment, the anger that the Lord was expressing was anger at Satan forever introducing death into the world. It wasn't supposed to be that way. I think he was also frustrated and furious that a family would have to be broken up like this. And he is deeply moved as he observes this scene. And he calls it forward in his indignation and his utter disgust. Not angry with the people. Don't misunderstand that. He's not angry with the people. But he's angry with the devil himself for causing it all. And then his second reaction, the second emotion we see, came just a short time later as they walked to the little cemetery. Verse 34. Where have you put him? He asked. They told him, Lord, come and see. And then we have the shortest verse in the Bible, which I'm sure we all learned in Sunday school, which is Jesus, Jesus wept. Some versions would literally interpret it as Jesus burst into tears. Another very strong emotion. I was thinking about that. Why? What, you know, if that emotion of the, the anger was so strong, what about this emotion of him crying and bursting into tears? I wonder what, what caused his tears? What caused him to weep? And there's a couple of things I'm going to mention here that are probably common that we could all think of. And then one occurred to me this week that I think might be different, at least I'd not thought before. The first idea why he might have wept. Some would say he was weeping for the sorrow of the sisters. We know that he was close to Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, that he had been to their home. He considered them dear friends, and it's very easy to see that he, were, he was sorrowful and weeping because of the sorrow of the sisters. But the truth is, if that were the case, he would have wept back at the house. But they've left the house, and they've now gone to the cemetery. Well, another idea would be that some would say he, was, he wept for himself at losing his dear friend Lazarus. The truth is the Jews thought that because they said, see how he loved him when he cried. Look at how he loved him. That was the proof of his love because Jesus was crying. That's all possible. But I want to present a third idea to you. And that is this. I think it's possible that Jesus was weeping out of sympathy for Lazarus. We are so prone to look at life from a human point of view. We would all think, how wonderful to call someone back from the grave. But let's consider the possible point of view of the Son of God. He's going to have to call back a person into this world to die again. He's going to call back a person into this world of sin and sickness and sorrow and suffering only to have to deal with it all again. I think it's possible that he was, Jesus was weeping for Lazarus. 
Jesus also knew that in bringing back Lazarus, he was actually signing his death warrant because in the next chapter, if you look chapter 12, it tells us that the leading priest decided to go ahead and kill Lazarus because he was the greatest demonstration. He was the greatest proof of the power of the Son of God. The fact that he was alive and living and God had raised him, Jesus had raised him from the dead was the biggest proof they had. So they decided they would kill him. And Jesus knew that going into this. And he saw all of this and he wept. Verse 36. The people who were standing nearby said, see how much he loved him. But some said, this man healed a blind man. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Jesus was still angry as he arrived at the tomb, a cave with a stone rolled across its entrance. Roll the stone aside, Jesus told them. But Martha, the dead man's sister, protested, Oh, Lord, Lord, he's been dead for four days. The smell will be terrible. Jesus responded, Didn't I tell you that you would see God's glory if you believe? So they rolled the stone aside, and then Jesus looked up to heaven, and he said, Father... I thank you for hearing me. Oh, you always hear me. But I said it out loud for the sake of all these people standing here so that they will believe that you sent me. And then the moment came and Jesus shouted. And I've heard it said the reason he literally declared his name is because the word of God is so strong. That had he not specifically said Lazarus come out, everybody in that cemetery would have come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet bound in grave clothes, his face wrapped in a headcloth. And Jesus told them, unwrap him and let him go. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So what are the lessons in this passage for us today? Because we know that all Scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable for us. Though this is the story of the resurrection of Lazarus, it is not the same story as the resurrection of Jesus. Profoundly different. Lazarus is resurrected here, back to life, but he will die again at the appointed time. Jesus was resurrected to life, never to die again. And even yet this morning, he is alive and reigning on heaven. He is not dead, he's alive. By the way, this event is sort of the final nail in the coffin, as it were, because Jesus' first miracle was at a wedding, and this, his last earthly miracle, is at a funeral. But when he did this, this is when the decision was made. Okay, he's gone over the top now. We must destroy him. This cannot go on. If he keeps doing this, if he keeps showing signs and wonders like this, the whole world will follow him. We must destroy him. This was absolutely the final thing that made it clear that they had to destroy him. And the plot to kill Jesus If you read on, it gets put on the fast track going on from here. So in this passage, Jesus clearly states, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, to be honest, that kind of thinking does not come easily for us. At least it does not for me. How can someone be dead? How can something be dead and then come back to life? How can that happen? That doesn't work in our our minds. It doesn't fit our our understanding of how things are. The only thing I can offer you, particularly those of you who are prone to be uh, pragmatic, the only thing I can offer you is that there are laws of God and laws in the spiritual realm that we have absolutely no knowledge of. And for God to raise the dead 
would require no more effort on his part than it would for you to drink a cup of coffee. It's nothing to God because he's the God of the universe who can do all things because he operates with laws and principles and a level of power that we're not even aware of. Let me, let me give you a, actually a trivial example. We all know of President Abraham Lincoln, whose birthday we'll celebrate next week. When Lincoln was president, 1860 to 1864, and then was elected again, and then was assassinated in the first year of his second term, let's say that you're walking with Lincoln one day outside the White House, and you look up at the moon, and you understand what a bright man Lincoln is, and you, and you understand all that, but you look up at the moon and you say, Mr. President, someday a man is going to walk on that moon. He'd say, are you out of your mind? Are you kidding? Someone, no one's going to walk on the moon. Walk on the moon, that's, that's, that's crazy. And they would probably call security right away and you'd be hauled off. Why is that? Because the principles and discoveries had not been made 150 years ago of laws and energy and thermodynamics and all the rest that would, that would be required to shoot a man into orbit and then have him walk on the moon. Now today, we almost think nothing of it because it happened 50 years ago for us or a long time ago. It was 1969. I remember where I was, and you probably do too, when you watched it on television with my black and white TV. But back in the day of Lincoln, had you said that, they probably would have considered you to be certifiable. And that's how it is with the raising of the dead. We're just not aware of the level at which God works, the laws of God the laws of the Spirit, the laws of what we call miraculous, which really is commonplace to the Lord. It's miraculous to us. So Lazarus was four days in the tomb, and Jesus told Martha and Mary, who were lamenting, I am the resurrection and the life. I want to make it very clear to all of us something this morning, just in case you're confused about it, and it's this, that when you die, nothing ends. As a believer, and this ought to cause every one of us to shout this morning, as a believer, you will never be separated from the Lord Jesus. Before Becky and I moved here back in 1912 or whenever it was, <laughs> we were working on, at a church with my mom and dad in Illinois, and the church uh, was next door to a family-owned funeral homes, the largest funeral home in the community and owned by a very fine family. There's a matriarch and her two sons basically ran it. It was next door to the church, but between the church and the funeral home was we shared a parking lot together. When they were having funeral services, we weren't having church services and vice versa. And they were wonderful people and quite often my dad and I early in the morning after we arrived at the office would go and have a cup of coffee with them or whatever and just chat for a few minutes. Great folks. And I'll never forget that one morning uh, we were there and they were sort of um, making it known, they were lamenting over the fact that the youngest guy who worked for them, who was basically the lowest guy on the totem pole just to help her, but they liked him a lot. He either had moved away or got another job. I don't remember the specifics of that, but he no longer was working for them. And they said, oh, we, we lost Johnny and we don't know what we're going to do because he was a great help to, uh, to the mortician. And so they said, I don't know what we're going to do. And I just said, I'll help you. I've never been smart enough to realize there's some things I should not do. 
So the day came, and I'm sure Becky remembers it well. The night came, about 3 o'clock in the morning. I was on call that night. And so the, the night came, and they called in the middle of the night, and they said, you need to meet us, the mortician. His name was Bill. said, uh, meet me at the um, funeral home, and we're going to go pick up a gentleman who's just passed away at the hospital. So we did that and picked him up and came back. And my job was simply just to assist. But I will never forget to my dying day, I will never forget what it was like to be there with someone who has just passed away. And I had the thought just moments ago, somebody was here, but he's gone. He's gone. We are not just a body. We are spirit, soul, and body. And in that situation, I was aware of the fact that, you know, sometimes when we see someone who's been prepared for a funeral service and they've been, you know, had makeup put on and their clothes are put on nicely and they're in a casket and the lights are all set appropriately. No, this wasn't that. This was fluorescent lighting in the basement and nothing to make anything look good at all. And I stood over that body in the profound experience of realizing he was just alive a few minutes ago, but wherever he is, he is not here now. He's gone. And the difference of understanding in that circumstance, how we are spirit, soul, and body, and understanding that there is a part of us, once you have been born and brought into this world, there is a part of us that will never, 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 ever die. Oh, the shell is there, but the person was gone. Because it has left the body and has gone on to its great reward. I want you to know this morning that if you are one who believes in Jesus and his resurrection power and you have committed your life to him, you will never die. I did what, hundreds of funerals with Pastor Dez over 33 years? How many times I saw him stand right here with a casket laying right there? And he would utter these words as he would speak at the end and address the family directly. Such words of comfort and peace. I see, I, many times I saw him say, this is not the end. This is not the end. And I remember even if it wasn't someone that I was related to or even knew that well, such comfort and nourishment I, I received from understanding. No, once you have been born in this world, you will never, never, never die. Oh, they can kill your body. They may kill your body. But how many of you know we are more than just a body? That's why we say death to a Christian is just falling asleep. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Jesus said, I am not only the resurrection, but I am the life. I'm the life after the resurrection. The person who believes in me will never die. There is no such thing as total death for the Christian. And that will cause every one of us to say hallelujah this morning. The Apostle Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, then we are more to be pitied than anyone in the world. We are of all men most miserable, some versions say. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. He is the first of a great harvest of all who have died or all who have fallen asleep. So you see, just as death came into the world through man, now the resurrection from the dead has been begun through another man. Just as everyone dies because we all belong to Adam, Adam, everyone who belongs to Christ will be given new life. I don't often refer to the version of Scripture called the message. Many of you like it, and that's fine. I looked at this verse this week, and I, I just have to share it to you. That same thing Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says this, if all we get out of Christ is a little inspiration for a few short years, 
we're a pretty sorry lot. But the truth is that Christ has been raised up, the first in a long legacy of those who are going to leave the cemeteries. How many of you are planning to leave the cemetery once you've been put in the ground? Hallelujah. He said, I am the resurrection and I am the life. Everything else, folks, comes to an end. But our life in Christ will never come to an end. These aren't just words that we say at funerals to offer some sort of passing comfort or momentary relief to the grieving process. No, these are the words of life. He is the resurrection and the life. Sing them over again to me, wonderful words of life. It's the reality of our life in Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. And it tells me to say this, that if you are here today... And you do not know Jesus, and you do not know what I'm talking about, about having eternal life, that you can know that you will never, never, never die. Your body may come to an end, but you will, your spirit will never, never, never die. You can have eternal life. Please give us the privilege of praying with you that you can have a life that will last forever. There's something else from this passage we need to look at. How many of you have ever prayed for something? And it didn't get better, it got worse. Am I the only one? Sometimes, Jesus lets something get worse before it gets better. Now this chapter that we read this morning, it's really all about faith. It's not what we specifically call the faith chapter of Hebrews 11, but it is really all about faith. Because Anyone can believe when things are going well, but it takes faith to believe when things aren't going well. Last week, we talked about the divine order, that first you believe and then you see the glory of God. Well, that's the same thing that happened here in this passage. He says, didn't I remind you that first you need to believe on me and then you will see the glory of God? It's, it's uh, not natural for us. We want to see the proof first. But the truth is the divine order is first you believe. First you make the deliberate choice. You're going to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then you will see what he's going to do. You will see the glory of God. Well, let's remember what happened in this passage. It tells us plainly that Jesus loved Mary, Martha, and the brother Lazarus. These are not people that were just casual to him. It's people he dearly loved. He loved all three of them. We know that Lazarus becomes sick. The two sisters sinned for Jesus, and we're told that after hearing about the sickness of Lazarus, Jesus stayed where he was two more days. Wouldn't you have thought he would have gone running to his dear friend when he heard he was sick? That's what we would have done, right? No, he hears the news and stays where he is two more days. So keep all of these things in mind as we go through this, as we go through this here for a couple of minutes. Jesus loves them. He gets news of the sickness, he delays, the sick one gets worse from the two-day wait, Lazarus gets worse, Jesus knows all this, but he does not get in a hurry. In fact, he doesn't show up until after Lazarus dies. And he's not just dead, he's four days dead. And then he waits until he stinks. In other words, what Jesus did was to say, I'm going to wait until this situation is absolutely impossible before I show up. Hello. And then Jesus had the audacity to say, and I'm glad for your sake 
that I wasn't there. I don't know about you, but if I'd been one of the disciples, that would have made me so nervous. Well, he didn't really mean that. He didn't mean I'm glad for your sake. You know, maybe in the Greek, glad means sad. I don't know. I can see them nervously trying to make up for the fact that he made this audacious statement. No, he said, I'm glad I wasn't there that you might believe. Here's the amazing thing about God. Listen to me carefully. Even when we think he's not there, he is watching over every detail in every situation of your life. When it doesn't feel like it, when it feels godless, when you feel lonely by yourself, he's watching over every detail of your life. And don't ever, 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 ever think that Satan gets there quicker than God, no matter what it looks like. Here's what I want to tell you this morning. God is fast. Say it. Remember Job? Satan, where have you been? Satan says, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth. And who does he find? He finds Job. And so what's he doing, Satan? I'm roaming to and fro throughout the earth. But I love what 2 Chronicles, hang on, folks. 2 Chronicles 16 says this, that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro through the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. So think about it. While Satan is running to and fro, to and fro, God's going, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there, I'm there. He gets there long before Satan does. God is fast. And when it looks to you like Jesus is delaying, God is saying, I'm already there. Even before death got to Lazarus, God was already there because he knew exactly what was going to happen. So when you think Satan's walking to your home, God's already there. Satan cannot beat the eyes of the Lord that run to and fro across this earth. Hallelujah! For greater is he that's in me, greater is he that's in you than he that's in the world. He is the great I am. He's the resurrection and the life. Come on, church, bless the Lord with me this morning. Magnify the Lord with me. He's there, he's there, he's there. And Jesus comes to Lazarus, but he doesn't just show up when he's sick. He shows up when he's dead. Good and dead. Stinking dead. He shows up, and here's what, here's what takes place. Shows up, Jesus who loves Lazarus, and he gets the prayer request in time, but he waits to go. We know that Lazarus does rise from the dead. But let me give it to you this way. Listen to me. Put your cell phone down. Quit texting. Listen to me. I think there are times when Jesus will not heal the sick because he wants to raise the dead. Selah. I think there are moments in your life and in mine that he is waiting for the situation to be just dead. This marriage is dead. 
This relationship, it's dead. This job, it's dead. There are times that I think Jesus would rather delay so that glory will come rather than responding immediately to my crisis cry. There are times when it's the choice of Jesus to not just heal. He wants to resurrect. And he's making sure that Father God will receive all of the glory. Sometimes God waits until things really stink before he shows up. I have a sense that there are some of you here this morning who have used these words. This stinks. Where I live, it stinks. My situation, it stinks. My job, it stinks. This relationship. And there are moments that God delays and waits. And he's deliberately waiting so as not to heal before the need to resurrect. And here's why. One more verse of chapter 11, verse 45. Many of the people who were with Mary believed in Jesus when they saw this happen. Look what happens. If Jesus heals sickness, then Mary and Martha feel good. And Lazarus gets healed, and we're all happy. But multitudes don't get changed. It's almost as if God steps back and says, if I let this thing get to this point, not only will you get your brother back, but you're going to get the people that you've been praying for for years and years and years to come into the kingdom of God because they will then see and believe. Therefore, Bethesda, This means that there are times when God is perfectly willing to be misunderstood by you and me for the sake of the ultimate good of giving glory to his Father. He's perfectly willing for you to have those thoughts that come into your head. I thought God loved me. Prayed. Nothing happened. Got worse. Can you imagine the talk that went on between day one and day four? Can you imagine Mary and Martha conversations as they're going to the, from the brother's sickness and into a coma and then into death? I think it's pretty obvious because if you notice in the text, they both said the same thing to Jesus at different times. Lord, if you'd been here, our brother would not have died. Martha says it and then Mary says the same thing. Girls have been talking. And then all of a sudden, those monstrous thoughts come into your mind. Don't you have thoughts sometimes that scare you? You can sit there and look holy and sanctimonious all you want. Thoughts that come into your head that are not faith. Thoughts of doubt. Well, I'm going to be a realist. Because the truth is, I see the real thing that happens here. Is God really real? Does he really care? Is he really concerned about my circumstance and my situation? Well, look what's happened. He is willing to allow himself to be misunderstood by us because he is thinking and planning and scheming a much deeper thing than just your need or just my need. He is thinking about how he can receive glory in this situation. And if it means you go a few more steps down, okay. 
If in the end result, as we said at the beginning of this message, if the end result is that God will receive all of the glory, that's perfectly fine with him. Dear friend, let me just say it to you straight. It's not about you and it's not about me. It's not about us and our needs. That's what we're so desperately aware of because we're in this flesh. We feel it. We know it. We have the pain. All kinds of it. It's not just about us. It's about the master plan of a sovereign God Almighty who controls this universe and has the highest good in mind for you, for him, and for the glory of King Jesus. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God. What does that mean? For the glory of God. What's the simplest way I can say that? Well, I think it's this. It's that which makes God famous. Not you and I just getting our needs met. But God being the center of attraction. Him receiving the credit. It's one thing for you to be healed of your sickness, Lazarus. It's a whole different thing when God gets all the glory. God says not only is Lazarus going to be healed, but a whole bunch of folks are going to find eternal life. And I'm going to receive all the glory because I am the resurrection and the life. God is saying, I've got to be sure that you and everyone else around knows clearly that the only one who could have done this, the only thing that could have done this is not a prescription, not a drug, not a doctor. I'm all good with all that stuff. Nothing else, nothing else could have possibly happened but the glory of God himself. That's when I'm going to come on the scene. Therefore, dear friend, sometimes God will say to you, I'm coming, but not until it stinks. That's when I'll show up. You may say to me, Pastor Dan, my situation stinks. And my response to you is, it's a perfect scenario for God to show up and receive all the glory for the great things he wants to do for you. And it's also in those moments that your opportunity for worship has never been greater. It's also in those moments that you must be very careful of your post the posturing of your heart. Because it makes a huge difference. As I close, as Pastor Brent comes, I'm going to take you to my very last scripture. I know the last one was the last one, but this is the really last one. <laughs> Psalm 22. No one is asking you to be inhuman or to de deny your doubts or your apprehensions. No one's asking you to do that. But there will be times when you are saying, God, please do this. God, please do this. I really need you to do this. And he delays. And it's in between the delay and the answer that's really the hard part. Please stay with me here just a couple of minutes, folks. I wish it was just four days, don't you? How many know it's more like four months? Four years. Hello? Four decades. There's a verse in Psalm 22. I shared it last Sunday night with the prayer group. It is so important for us when we are in the waiting. If you're somewhere between day one and day four. How many of you have heard the phrase, you inhabit the praises of your people? How many of you have heard that phrase? It means, Lord, that he, he settles down there. You come. You sit there. You live in. You inhabit the praises of your people. Well, the praise of this Psalm 22 is not centered on music. It's not about words on a screen. It's not about keyboards and drums and guitars, choirs. 
Not all that stuff that we love so much. No, this is a different kind of worship. When the psalmist says you inhabit the praises of your people. Because it's in those moments where you're saying this thing stinks and there's no answer. That God is delaying and even being misunderstood by you. God is saying to us, healing is good, but if I resurrect this, it's far better because I'm the resurrection and the life. So you say to me, Pastor Dan, what do I do when I'm in day one, day two, and day three, and day four hasn't arrived yet? Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night you hear my voice, but I find no relief. How many of you have ever felt that way? God, you're not even talking to me. And then look at the next verse. Psalmist David says, after pouring out his heart that way, he says, yet, it's the biggest yet in the Bible, yet you are holy. Church, that's worship. Pastor Brent, that's worship. The psalmist is saying, I don't even hear you talking to me. But it still doesn't change who you are. You are still holy. And look what he says. You're not only holy, but you are enthroned on the praises of Israel. No music. No choir. No Hammond organ. No guitars. No Hillsong CDs. No Gaither videos. None of that stuff that we love so much that we need. None of that. Just raw stuff. The psalmist declares the truth about his situation. Doesn't have all those necessary elements for his inspiration. But he says, I still know this. Yeah, that's the way I feel. Yet, you are holy. And you inhabit the praises of your people. So come settle in here, God. Come sit here. Come live here as I give you my praise out of pure faith. Even when everything stinks around me, I can still throw up my hands. I can still lift my voice. And I can still declare, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. I can lift my voice still and say, regardless of how I feel, hallelujah to the Lamb of God. I choose to believe. I don't see it now. In fact, all of the circumstances look impossible to me. I don't see it now, but I choose. I choose to believe because I know that you are holy. Church, He is the great I am. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. He is the resurrection and the life. Let's stand together, please.